Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm director of MTF Labs, and this is the MTF Podcast. I think I first came across the work of Aram Sinraik in 2013. I'd already come on board as part of Music Tech Fest by then, but my day job was still as Professor of Music Industries Innovation at Birmingham City University. I was researching, writing, teaching, blogging, and speaking about music online, the digital music industries, digital copyright, and all the ways in which music culture and music commerce were changing as a result of the internet, and vice versa. And so Aram's book, The Piracy Crusade, was required reading. I think I even assigned it to my MA class. I certainly recommended it to a whole bunch of people. So just a few months later, as we were running MTF in Wellington, New Zealand, and simultaneously organising MTF Boston, in a year where we had five music tech fests in as many countries, Aram's name popped up again. He was going to be joining us, thanks to the brilliant Nancy Bame. See episode 19 of this podcast for more on her. As part of the after-party, as we called it, a one-day academic symposium that followed a full-on three-day music tech fest at Microsoft Research in Cambridge MA, Aram was one of just over 20 hand-picked international high-level thinkers who brainstormed and contributed to what became MTF's manifesto, which says, among other things, music technologies make worlds. Let us make better worlds. Let music technology do good, serve public interest, foster belonging, justice, collaboration, and sharing. Enable greater access to positive musical experiences and personal connections, and create durable objects and practices. That was from the MTF Music Techie Festo, collaboratively written in 2014. And... While we've exchanged tweets on occasion since then, and maybe an email or two as part of the day-to-day work, I hadn't really sat down and had a proper talk with Aram since then. Which is kind of a shame, because as you'll hear, there's a fairly significant overlap in the Venn diagram of our respective interests. And these days, I have a podcast, so I thought I'd give him a shout. So, Aram Sinraik, thanks so much for joining us for the MTF Labs podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, splendidly. How are you, Andrew? I'm very well. You're looking exactly as I last saw you, which I just uh, calculated was pretty much to the day seven years ago at MTF in, well, we called it MTF Boston. Strictly speaking, it was Cambridge. It was. Uh, it was on the uh, on the ground floor of the Microsoft complex. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember that one of the things that you were kind of central to uh, was what became known as the, uh, the the Manifesto for Music Technologists or the Music Techie Festo. Do you want to tell us a little bit about you know how that came about and, and your role in that? Sure. Um, I was not an organizer, I don't think. It was, it was the brilliance of Nancy Baim and a couple of other people. Um, basically, there is this weird nexus, which you live at the juncture of, between people who uh, think musically and understand tech and care about civil liberties. And um, that tribe includes technologists, academics, artists, writers, everyday people. And Nancy essentially pulled us all together and said, look, there is this incipient problem, right, which is that music is always at the bleeding edge of new technological, um, not only innovations, but epistemologies, ways of thinking about the role of tech in our lives for a variety of reasons. And we can see problems coming down the pike 
as our society becomes more technologized, as data becomes uh, a more vital commodity, as we spend more and more of our days and intimate hours in the embrace of silicon, um, what can we learn from the ways in which uh, we have and haven't adapted to digital music in order to make sense of this world that's coming down the pike at us? Um, and furthermore, how can we develop a set of um, basic principles for, uh, for uh, a more ethical life from our understanding of how we failed to do so in the music world? And I thought that was a great call to action, and, and we ended up having a, a day-long conversation and a lot of arguments and debates. And I don't, I'm not sure that we solved any of the problems, but we certainly put them out in the open. Do you think that music serves as a kind of a canary in the coal mine for all of industry or all sectors for this sort of thing? Oh, yeah, more than industry. I mean, when I, when I started out you know, as an internet industry analyst in the 90s, you know, we would routinely talk about music as the canary in the coal mine. And, and part of that was just the tech affordances. You know, an MP3 was three megabytes and, you know, a, a movie file was half a gig. Um, so obviously people were doing things like file sharing and streaming with music long before they were doing it with video. But more than that, you know, the, the more that I've researched musical culture and musical history uh, over the past 20 years as an academic, the more I realized that the reason for that is intimately tied to the history of our species and the fact that, you know, if you believe certain um, archaeoanthropologists that, you know, we were a musical species before we were a linguistic one and that the sonic entrainment of our nervous systems was the kind of germ that led to the creation of organized human society. And because of that, music continues to play this, this really unique foundational role in creating consciousness and culture and social organization. And so it becomes this, if, if you know how to read the tea leaves or how to listen to the tea boiling, I guess, it becomes this really incredible carrier wave for very subtle changes in our social architecture that end up manifesting into much larger changes that, that, um, that are totalizing. Right. So, you know, that was part of the argument that I made in my book, Mashed Up, which started as my doctoral dissertation, was that this new architecture of music, uh, which was, you know, emblematized by the mashup, was really the operating system for a new social architecture that would tear down traditional binaries, you know, gender binaries, political binaries, um, that would uh, also erase lines between work and leisure, between um, between war and peace, between uh, public and private. And, you know, that we could, uh, if we looked closely at the ways that people at the front lines of those tensions, namely DJs and mashup producers, were navigating that and trying to make sense of this newly blurred world that they were living in, we would be able to do a lot to prepare ourselves for these broader social changes. Mm. I mean, the world has become more split Though I mean it's become more diverse, clearly, but it's also become more split into into polarities. Do you think that's reconcilable? I'm not sure. I believe that. Uh, I think that's true politically, but that is an artifact of a uh, basically a two party system that was put in place in the U.S. in the 18th century. Um, I don't see that happening culturally. You know, I have two children. Uh, one of them is non-binary, <clears throat> an 11 year old. And the other one's best friend just came out to their parents. 
as non-binary. And this is like a normative subculture for people my children's age. And, you know, I, I think that that tendency to explore these spaces between binaries is much more uh, the hallmark of the era that we're living in than the kind of political polarities that, that you see written about, uh, you know, in, in the weekly news tabloids. And and I guess as a significant part of our culture, music plays a role in whether it's the shaping of that, whether it's cause and effect or reflecting that. Which do you think it is? I think it's a feedback loop, right? So music uh, is, like I said before, the, the kind of operating system for human culture and human consciousness. And, you know, it, it literally the, the reason that we're conscious is because of these synaptic signals that travel through the different subregions of our of our brains and uh, correspond to these cultural signals that travel between us, uh, you know, via media, from air to the internet. And so when there's a change in the music, you know, uh, I, Plato very famously said, when the mode of the music changes, the walls of the city shake, or something to that effect. And, and I, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand whether that's true, and I think the answer is almost always yes. And if so, whether what's the, exactly what you ask, what's the cause and what's the effect? And it's neither, because music is not separate from the human experience. Music is, is uh, the audible dimension of that experience. And so the changes that we hear in music are always um, not symptomatic of or causal of, but rather um, you know, the, the perceptible uh, leading edge of social change. We should probably talk a little bit about your job and why that's something that leads you to think about these sorts of things in this way. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do and where you do it? Yeah, sure. I'm a professor of media studies at American University in Washington, D.C. And communication studies department. Correct. Yeah, I'm the chair of the communication studies department. Com studies and media studies are kind of flip sides of the same coin. Uh, the nice thing about the com studies framing is that you can include things like policy and industry studies in the mix whereas media studies tends to look more just at the kind of social role of media. But I call myself a media studies person because that's kind of my home base. Sure. And I, I guess being a media studies person in the 21st century means you very much look at digital technologies. Is there a continuum from communication and media studies, from radio, from newspapers, from television that has continued, or is there a distinctive break when the internet comes along? There's no short way for me to answer that question because <laughs> I've done a lot of uh, theory building recently about uh, what I see as this kind of five-step endless cycle between uh, technology and markets and culture and laws and basically social imaginaries. And I've, I've published some research recently that, that kind of shows like one example of how the past 500 years of musical and cultural history can be understood through this never-ending cycle. Um, but, uh, but yeah, of course it's a continuum, right? Uh, the commonality between all of these platforms and all of these techno-social moments is the human spirit, right? We have certain psychosocial needs. We have certain inbuilt uh, affordances as, as a species. And all of our tools reflect those needs and, and those capacities in various ways. You know, I, I just did like like this week, the social tech du jour is Clubhouse. And so I just did an interview with uh, The Hill a few days ago where they were saying, like, 
tell us, does Clubhouse change everything? And I was like, no, of course Clubhouse doesn't change everything. I'm old enough to remember when like telephone party lines were a hot thing for people to do. It's essentially an identical technology because human beings like to get together in rooms and talk with each other. That's part of what we like to do. So of course we build tools using whatever technologies are available to us at the time to do that. And during COVID, you know, when we're all locked down in our houses, of course, we're going to look for a way to do that remotely um, and, and as frictionlessly as possible. Um, so one of the cool things about working in comm studies is that you get a sense of the, the kind of history of the interactions between these cultural behaviors, technological platforms, and, and legal environments and economic environments. And so we're always thinking in terms of historical metaphor. You know, you, you get somebody like uh, Tim Wu or uh, Nancy Baim or Victor Picard, uh, you know, and, and they're always trying to understand emerging technological behaviors through the lens of like, how does this correspond to like the birth of radio or to the printing press? And the interesting thing isn't how those metaphors fit. You know, you see a lot of like BuzzFeed article headlines like, you know, this exact thing happened in 1922 with the Federal Radio Commission. And while there's some truth in that, and I appreciate that kind of like publicly accessible media historiography, what I think is really interesting to those of us who study this is those moments where it breaks, right? So again, you know, going back to like when I was an internet industry analyst before I figured out that academia would be a fun place to play, um, I was fascinated in digital music, you know, this, we're talking about like 1998, 1999, because it broke the techno-historical distinctions between broadcasting and retail, right? Like, is, is music on the internet more like uh, a radio broadcast or is, is it more like a record sale, right? That question took the music industry 15 years to figure out. And there were a handful of us back then at the turn of the century going, it's neither, it's both. Here's what you have to do about it. Um, and, you know, arguably that uh, the what to do about it is... Uh, was about half settled by the birth of, of the modern streaming services 10 years ago, but uh, is still highly contentious. Yeah, well, 99 would have been an interesting year to be having that conversation. It was amazing. I mean, all of my clients were like the major record labels, the major movie studios, the major software publishers. And, um, you know, I re actually remember going to my boss circa, I don't know, summer of 98 and saying, you know, I think music on the internet is going to be really interesting. And, you know, this was the age of like liquid audio, right? And real networks, uh, back when it was called progressive networks. Uh, those were like the dominant players. And, and saying, you know, I think this is going to be super transformative. And I remember my, my boss saying to me in a very kind way, like, don't get your hopes up. Like, this is not a thing that's going to happen. Like, you know, and, and then, um, you know, I think it was June of 1999, Napster hit. And the way that people thought about the Internet's capacity to serve musical culture and to break musical uh, industrial economies, like, just overnight changed. Like, it was the greatest thing that ever happened, but also the most terrifying to certain people. Yeah. And to what extent is something like technology, like a technology like Napster, to what extent is that something that happens to us as a society? And to what extent is that something that, that we can kind of negotiate? Uh, we're always negotiating. Right. So a technology like Napster doesn't take off the way that it did if there is not a latent social need 
among people for what the platform allows you to do. And of course, you know, platforms are never, never end up being used exclusively the way that their designers imagine them to be used, right? I mean, Facebook was supposed to be used to find hot girls on campus, and now look at what it is, right? It's like, right. you know, the, the surveillance capitalism infrastructure on a global basis. Um, so uh, I think that there was very, at that moment in time, the music industry had become very ossified. Right. Um, because of deregulation in the 1990s. And I'm talking about the U.S. here. Um, obviously, things are very different elsewhere around the world. But in the U.S., you'd had this kind of deregulation, which allowed companies like Clear Channel to go on a buying spree. And like every radio station in the world was playing exactly the same 30 songs every single week mm-hmm. um, because they all had the same corporate owner who were getting the same payola from the same handful of record labels, which dwindled from six majors in 1997 to three in 2002 Mm. um, or thereabouts. I don't remember exactly the year. Um, And so, so the music had this kind of stultifying sameness to it. I mean, this is the era of Britney Spears and the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. And I know that everyone's nostalgic for that now because the millennials grew up on that stuff, but, but God, it was really boring. Like for those of us who were real music heads, um, it was, it was the first era in which, you could turn on the radio and just never hear something that was remotely unexpected, hmm. you know? And, and that was like, that's, that's painful to people who are really invested in their sonic environments. Um, so I think there was this, there was this building unrecognized resistance to that ossification and a need to diversify our sonic landscapes and the brilliance of Sean Fanning and the Napster platform was that it compelled you to share as you were listening, right? Previously to that, you had like websites like mp3.com, which were great. But, you know, on sites like that, you would upload an mp3 and then someone else could download the mp3, mm-hmm. right? Those were two separate actions. With Napster for the first time, the act of participating in the musical network was simultaneously giving and getting, which much more mimics the way that we experience music in our, in our social lives, I think, right? It's never a one-way transaction. Um, so I, I think that that made intuitive sense to a sufficient number of people that it became massively adopted in a very short time. And of course, that had ripple effects in terms of economics and law and public perception and, and ultimately, I think, helped to de-ossify music. Um, it started to make music interesting again. Right. So shortly before we met, you put out a book called The Piracy Crusade. Um, two things. One, define piracy. And two, is it still a thing? <clears throat> well, um, I have to be very careful because I have certain obligations to certain parties who would prefer that I speak circumspectly about the subject in certain fora. Uh Piracy, um, I think actually the best thing on piracy I've ever read was Adrian Johns' book that came out, I don't know, maybe a decade ago. Uh, It's just called Piracy. Maybe the subtitle is something like A Short History or something like that. But the basic insight of Adrian Johns, and I've certainly found this in my own research, not only on P2P, but on pirate radio and on... um, uh, piratical behaviors by early publishers in Scotland and everything in between. 
is that piracy is the frame, the, a rhetorical device employed by legacy stakeholders in order to delegitimize new entrants and threats in their marketplace. And the accusation of piracy always precedes changes in the laws that, that um, structurally exclude certain new ideas from the marketplace. Right? So for instance, famously the very first copy, proto-copyright law was the Stationers Company Charter in the mid-16th century in London. And part of the way that the publishers in London petitioned the Crown at the time to create this proto-copyright law, which gave them a monopoly over the permission to decide who published what, um, was by accusing these Scottish publishers who were underselling them of piracy. And it, you can go back even further, as Adrian Johns does, and point out that, you know, ostensible piracy in the ancient Mediterranean wasn't even really piracy. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a framework that, you know, if the Genoese accused the uh, Tunisians of piracy, that meant that they didn't view Tunisian, um, you know, uh, profiteering as being legitimate, politically legitimate. It was a way of saying this person does not have official sanction. Um, so to this day, you, I mean, the second half of your question was, does piracy still exist? Yes, of course piracy still exists because the framework that, uh, that allows existing players in a marketplace to say, this new person, this new company with this new idea is threatening us, let's make them illegal, um, that's never going to go away, right? It's, it's such an effective framework. And, you know, we just saw, um, you know, we've seen a lot of interesting new copyright law come out in the U.S. in the last two years. The Music Modernization Act, the CASE Act, which just got passed in this huge omnibus bill in December after failing several times on its own, um, that basically create these new, erect new boundaries to the flow of information on the Internet. Um, and in the case of the, moder the Modernization Act, specifically with music, and, uh, and those are all based on the presumption that piracy is a thing and that it is bad and that it can be stopped. Uh, but that's, a, that's like a, an ever-receding um, goal line. Like, you're, you're never going to stop piracy because no, people are never going to stop having new ideas and people who are threatened by those new ideas are never going to stop accusing them of being pirates. Hmm. If there's a more culturally loaded word than piracy, um, crusade, would be up there. Um, do you want to talk about that choice of word in the book title? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I ended up doing a lot of reading about the original Crusades hmm. when I was working on this book because I thought it was more than just a useful metaphor. I thought there were strange historical reverberations between the two. Um, you know, the, the ancient Mediterranean, which is where the concept of piracy originates uh, and where the Crusades took place um, is during the entire, you know, four millennia of maritime global trade was like the crux of, uh, of you know, the place where East and West met, right? Over land, you had the Silk Road, um, but you can only carry, you can carry a lot more in ships than you can on the, the back of, of a horse, um, or on a cart. And so the Mediterranean was this essential um, uh, thoroughfare between, uh, between the Middle East and the Eastern markets that it served and 
Northern Africa and Southern Europe and the markets North and, West and South that they served. And so if you actually look at the history of the Mediterranean, the battles between empires, um, including you know, the Holy Roman Empire and, and you know, Byzantine Empire and, and, and various other empires that, that, that controlled portions of the Mediterranean for periods of centuries between ancient times and, and, um, and modernity, um, most of the wars that were fought in the name of religion were actually trade wars. And were gussied up in the dress of religion in order to legitimize them in the minds of citizens, soldiers, and leadership. So in, in the beginning of the piracy crusade, I talk about one specific one, uh, a, a, one of the last crusades. It was called the Siege of Madia. I think it was 1390. And basically, there were two European states that had serious political problems internally. One of them was France, where um, they had basically taken a break in this 100-year war with, with Britain, and so all the soldiers had come home, and the soldiers were like hungry for glory and power and money, and were running rampant, and the king couldn't do anything with them, and they were just like, you know, destroyed. Like, imagine like if the U.S. recalled every soldier stationed around the world to like Washington, D.C. Like, it would just be a nightmare, right? That's basically what France was like at the time. And then in Genoa, which was an independent state in what's now Italy, um, you had this long-standing political battle. Um, and basically, uh, the, all of their wealth was based on them being like a, a port city that brought goods into Europe from the Mediterranean. Um, but they were getting their lunch eaten uh, by Venice, which was like on the other side of the country and was, had a much better access to the Eastern Mediterranean. So the Genoese needed basically to clear out the North African, uh, profiteers from the Mediterranean and France needed someplace to send its soldiers. So the heads of both countries were like, Hey, you know, chocolate, peanut butter, let's find a really good excuse to send these soldiers to clear out the Mediterranean. How about Jesus? Right, and uh, they actually went and they laid siege to this uh, to this city in North Africa called Madia, this walled city, and they completely fucked it up strategically. Like it, you know, walled city. They didn't bring any battering rams. Hundred degree heat. They laid siege in the middle of summer in like full body armor and like died. Like double digit percentage of them died from like thirst and like getting bitten by flies, and and it was just horrible. And it lasted for months and months and months and months. And when they sent their uh, negotiators out to talk, you know, the Madians leaders were like, why are you laying siege to us? Like, sure, we, we go after your ships, but you go after our ships. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, game-recognized game. And they were like, oh, no, it's not about that. It's because of what you did to Jesus. And the Madians were like, what are you talking about? That was the Jews, <laughs> right? Because uh, obviously, you know, Islam didn't even exist in Nazareth in the first century. And so uh, despite the biblical accuracy of that claim, uh, the, the seizures didn't back off. And they ended up just kind of losing uh, everything on that. Then they went home and they told uh, their constituencies that they had won, despite the fact that they had lost. And based on that, uh, Europe went into what turned out to be its last crusade 
in Constantinople, I think, and it ended up just basically losing control over the Middle East, like more or less permanently, losing control over Turkey and, and the rest of it. And so the and, and because of that, uh, I know this is way longer answer than you wanted, but this is fascinating to me. Because of that, Europe lost control of of the access to the to the Orient, and so that's when they started funding colonization and the African slave trade and the discovery of the Americas by Europe. So the entire history of the West is based on this one lie, based on this one failed uh, crusade, based on political needs that were gussied up as religious uh, beliefs. And I, I think that is, that, that is such a great metaphor for the, way, for the ham-fisted ways in which we are trying to regulate these new and emerging digital spaces, is that, you know, the internet, do you remember being optimistic about the internet in the 1990s? Like this notion that like... Very much so. Whole, I, in fact, I remember being optimistic in the early days of Twitter. Truly, I was actually, I just posted on Twitter today, I said something along the lines of like, what I had for lunch Twitter was the best Twitter. <laughs> Don't at me. I miss that. But so, so we, we are, there's no question that if we somehow avoid global climate catastrophe, we are going to be entering into an era of AI augmented humanity that is qualitatively so different from what human beings have experienced since the birth of civilization that it'll be virtually unrecognizable. Um, and, and, and in relatively short order, I mean, this stuff is, is happening really, really, really quickly. More quickly, I think, even than those of us who pay attention to it for a living can wrap our heads around. And that world could look like anything. It doesn't have to be dystopian. It doesn't have to be the Matrix. It doesn't have to be existence. It doesn't have to be a Black Mirror. We can literally build whatever we want with it. And we tend not to, though, right? No, we get caught in these cycles. That's what I'm saying is that, you know, we're creating the conditions for like permanent technofascism based on the flimsiest of excuses in the same way that like Europe ended up giving like having to create not having to that Europe ended up seeing a necessity to create the Atlantic slave trade based on their own failures, based on these flimsy premises. Right. And that that's what I'm worried about. It's not just, you know, that. Person X is going to get sued for $150,000 and go bankrupt, or that person Y would really like to participate in the music economy and is going to get uh, excluded from it. I mean, those are bad, right? But the first order consequences are the least of it, right? The, the reason I use the met to answer your question, I don't know if you can use any of this. I'm just rambling, but. No, no, this is, I, I like a long answer. But the, the reason that I put this in terms of the crusade is precisely in order to point out that there are long-term tectonic consequences for the kinds of policies that we're arguing for today. They, they, become, they, they end up building on themselves and getting embedded into techno-social systems in a way that produces um, a dystopian outcome. And I would really like to avoid that. I would like to think that you know, when my children are like 100 years old, they're going to live in some kind of, uh, you know, utopia free from want and, you know, of, of perfect participation in equity and justice and, and creative expression and not in some universe where you have to um, watch an ad before you're allowed to re release dopamine into your bloodstream, 
So I guess sort of in a nutshell, while piracy might be seen to be antisocial, regulation against piracy took place in full body armor in the height of summer against some very high walls and led to slavery. That's, that is a, a, a shorter TLDR version of what I said, yes. But you have a stake in this. I mean, you, you are, as well as being a sort of an accomplished, acclaimed academic on these matters, you're also a musician and, and not just a dabbler. You're somebody who does it for real. Um, so what is your experience and how has that changed as digital technologies have progressed? Well, let me push back against that for a second because I, I don't like the framing of dabbling and, and amateurism. I think that's I think that's um, that frame is a, is a kind of uh, self hatred that humans inflict on themselves. You know, I, I meet people all the time who are like, "Well, I play guitar, but I'm not a musician." And I'm like, "Well, what the fuck do you think a musician is? Right? Of course you're a musician. Like, if you make music, you're if you're a musician. If you listen to music and clap along, you're a musician. So." Yes, I, I participate in the music economy as a performer and a composer and a recording artist, but that doesn't make me more real than somebody who doesn't, right? Music belongs to them just as much as it belongs to me. I'll tell you, I, I think the internet is one of the greatest things that's ever happened in music. I fucking love it. Um, you know, I've been locked down. I, I married my lead singer. Um, she hired me back in 1995 to play in a band. And she married her bassist is what you mean to say. I do mean to say that. I married my boss, is really, is really what I'm saying. Um, yeah, she hired me back in 1995 in New York uh, to play in uh, what was then a very popular downtown band called Agent 99. And um, we ended up outlasting the band by several decades. Um, and the two of us have been in several groups together and, of course, have had separate projects as well over the years. And it's, it's been so wonderful to be locked down. Like, if you're going to be locked down, be locked down with your creative partners, you know, because she and I have had the opportunity to do all kinds of songwriting and online live streaming together. And we are also doing a ton of recording. And our collaborators are in South Korea. They're in Europe. They're in New York and California. Um, we're playing with people all over the world. Um, and, you know, developing really wonderful music in a way that, you know, 20 years ago, we'd all have to be in the same studio together at the same time. Um, and the ability to connect to people on that basis, uh, I don't think I would have survived this past year with a shred of sanity if I had not been able to do that. Mm. Um, so, so technology, to my mind, has been great for that. The danger of it, of course, is that we come to uh, to see the the simulation as being the thing that's simulated, and that we we lose track of the kind of somatic, geographic qualities of music as well, right? I mean, there's no substitute for playing music in a room full of people. Is that a latency thing, or is that a or is that a, just a physicality thing? That is such a smart question. It's not just latency, because music is not just one signal. And it's not just physicality, because those signals are not merely physical. To me, the most compelling and meaningful musical experiences are multimodal, right? Like, you, you can smell it when people are excited by the music that you're playing. I, you know, I'm a rhythm instrumentalist. I play the bass. And, you know, 
I love to see people dance while I'm playing dance music. Like not all the music I play is dance music, but when I'm playing dance music, like I like to see people's bodies because like I learn things about the music from watching people move. And I, I integrate that into the way that I'm playing, not in like a super like over the top, like corny and obvious way, but like in a subtle way, like the way that you feel an eighth note or the way that you feel the relationship between the bass and the drums, like which is out in front of the other, right? Those kinds of issues, like the joy of, of music. Um, so my favorite definition of music comes from Jacques Attali, who I'm sure you've read inside and out many times through. But in, in his book Noise, he calls it a dialectical confrontation with time. And I, I really think that plus sociality is, is, is the best definition of music that I can think of. Because it, it is, you know, there's this trope about living in the moment. And, you know, I've, I've meditated and done all kinds of things to try to be in the moment. But I've never been more in the moment than when I am actively playing music with other human beings in a room full of, of even more human beings. I am paying attention to every single microsecond and every fluctuation not just of sound, but visually, olfactorily, conceptually. And that, I think, I think the reason why it's so satisfying is because it allows you to be the most of yourself. You're inhabiting the most of the human experience simultaneously. And, and not only are you inhabiting all of your own senses and paying attention to them at a super granular temporal level, but you're also inhabiting other people's subjectivities simultaneously and doing, doing the work that your nervous system was, was made to do to reconcile other people's subjectivities with your own and to achieve a kind of collective consciousness, you know, um, to go back to, you know, what we were talking about before, you know, the, the, the million years of music uh, framework, you know, we are hardwired to, to, connect to other people that way. And, um, and, you know, I don't care if it's a trick of evolution. You know, I'm not a big believer in intelligent design because I know people who are much less intelligent than a god who would have designed things a lot better. But we are hardwired by evolution to, to respond well to these kinds of stimuli and to, and to take pleasure in those kinds of connection. Um, so, you know, is it possible that some kind of technological mediation that had no latency, that was multimodal, that had smell-o-vision baked into it, that that could serve the same function? Sure. I'm not saying it's impossible. Um, but I wonder whether it's just squaring the circle. You know, whether we'll ever... Let me put it in a different way. To me, the most exciting uses of technology aren't to reproduce what we have in our organic lives, but to provide options that don't exist in our organic lives, right? That's why I like mashups or dub reggae, right? I mean, I spend so much time trying to explain this to my students when I teach my musical cultures and industries class. Like, the brilliance of, like, a dub reggae producer, like, scientist, you know, um, or Lee Scratch Perry, is that they make impossible spaces, right? So, like, the snare drum might be in this little echo chamber, Right. But like 
um, the, the hi-hat is like in this giant room that's like reverberating all around you and panning at the same time, right? And your brain, which evolved in order to use sound to create a map of the world that you're in for evolutionary reasons, can't help but to, to try to reconcile these impossible spaces into one coherent understanding of the world that, that your body is in. And your higher mind, your, your, uh, uh, your, abs- your capacity for abstraction recognizes that your ears are failing to do that and takes pleasure in the game of it. You know? And so playing with, playing with the limits of, of embodied organic experience through exploiting the unique affordances of technology, to me, that's, that's where tech adds something to music. Not... not putting us in the matrix where we can't tell the machine apart from, from real life, right? It's, it's take the machine to augment real life, you know, ex- create new spaces that to explore that you can't explore in your physical life. Is, is this an argument for art plus science and therefore music is, you know, uh, at the apex of human experience? Man, I don't know what any of those words mean. Like, I have no idea what the apex of human experience is. All I can say is that the, the, you know, music and sex are the two experiences that I am aware of that bring me closest to a, a full, a, to a totalistic integral experience of being a human being. Right. But I know that that's not true for everybody. For some people it's food. For some people it's, um, you know, who knows what people are into all kinds of stuff. Right. Um, so I, I won't get into to superlatives like apex. As to art and science, I, I'm not even sure what your question is. Like, what what is it exactly that you're asking me? Is it the case? I mean, a lot of people talk about music as being this really kind of ideal place at which art and science coalesce, uh, at which, for instance, uh, musicians are great mathematicians or the, 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 the brain does something that brings together not just the uh, cerebral and the visceral, but also the left and right brain metaphor, if you like. And, and that being kind of the sort of the, you know, all of the bits of being human come together in one place. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, I mean, art and science are like these these categories that we've created for social and economic reasons that, that are not to me very valuable. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I hate the concept of art. I, I fucking hate it. Um, Larry Gross, um, a comm scholar who was my, my doctoral advisor when I was a, a grad student wrote this great article, um, called, uh, where he talked about uh, the concept of art being like a reservation, you know, in the same way that like, uh, a reservation that Native Americans are sequestered on by the federal government in the U.S., um, that artists get kind of shunted off to this little side place, you know, that's, that's ancillary to human experience. And that, that the very concept of art is really uh, intimately tied to that process of sequestration. And I, that resonated with me so much, really changed, helped me to think through what I had been sensing incoately for my whole life when I, when I read Larry's work on, on that. Um, but what, but the, the, the broader point that you're making, that we have these dual epistemologies, one of which is very intuitive and, and integral, and the other of which is very analytical uh, and, um, and logical, and that 
music can unite those things, I, I think is very true. I mean, you know, I listen to a lot of like Indian classical music. Um, you know, I've been on a, like a real like uh, Carnatic flute kick lately for some reason, you know, like Carnatic flute and Radungam and um, sometimes violin. Uh, and, you know, th- I mean, that's like a great example of music that does that, you know, that's so mathematical, but it's not like prog rock in that it's just being mathematical for the sake of it. You know, it's more like John Coltrane. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen that amazing, um, uh, like, it's like this heuristic that Coltrane drew of the relationships between all of the different... The giant steps? Yeah, well, he uses it in giant steps when he goes through that cycle of fourths all the way through. But it's basically, the, it's, it's like the roadmap for giant steps. So it's like all of the chromatic uh, tones arrayed in this, like, circle... And then these kinds of lines between them showing different kinds of relationships between different tones in the chromatic sequence. And basically what he, you know, what I love about John Coltrane's music, as well as about like certain kinds of uh, Indian classical music and other styles too, is this sense that like, you know, if like, I don't know about you, but I get so like, I, I don't. I don't like most music visual visualizers that I see. Like if you, if you have like, you know, um, iTunes on and you press visualizer, it just goes, Ooh, it's music. Right. But when I hear music, I hear it as like these concentric rainbows, right? It's like, um, you know, it's a spectrum that, and it's, it's, a, it's not a two dimensional space. It's like a four dimensional space where you can occupy, you can create shapes that evolve within within these concentric rainbows. I know I sound like a total hippie, but I, I'm actually just trying to be uh, accurately descriptive. So yeah, so I, I do think there's truth in that. Uh, it's not that it's art meets science. It is more the recognition and the experience of, a, of an epistemology that is large enough to encompass both intuitive and deductive forms of knowing. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a larger space in which to think and feel in a way that does not require you to, uh, to distinguish between those terms. Interesting. I, I guess the way that I would articulate that would be that I like it when the music that I enjoy does something clever. For sure. Um, I don't know if you ever read Leonard B. Meyer, the music theorist. No, I don't think I have. He's like a... Um, mid 20th century uh, music theorist who's really thinking about classical music the way that most serious music theorists did in the West at that period of time. Um, but his whole shtick is that meaning in music comes from, it's, it's almost like uh, humor, like stand-up comedy. It comes from establishing expectations based on convention and style and then defying those expectations. Sure. And he goes through like, I mean like, you know, the most playful composer of the classical era is like Mozart, right? Right. Mozart's like, do, 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 we're going to go over here. No, we're over here now, right? And it's not like, oh, uh, you know, it's not like romantic, like, you know, Beethoven, like, I have to express my pain at being in the world. It's, it's more like, just like, come on this journey with me. We can play, yep. you know, like you think I'm going to resolve here, but I'm actually resolving to this totally different key. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree with you. Like, I think all the music that, in any style, in any genre, from any place, in any time, music that really excites me is the music that defies my expectations and, and, and plays. 
acknowledges that there's a listener and creates this kind of dialogue with the imagined listener through its playfulness in a way of saying, like, like, hey, I'm not just doing this for me. I'm not just expressing myself or saying something that's true or, you know, putting something out there. I am, I am playing for you, Andrew. I'm going to make this music and set up expectations in your mind, in your body, and then I'm going to fuck with them. And you're going to recognize that I'm doing that. And we'll have some, like, nachis. We'll, you know, we'll, it'll be, you know, it'll be I and I, mm. to use Martin Buber or, you know, uh, Rastafarianism. I, I have to ask, were you a mixtape kid growing up? Oh, for sure. Are you kidding? I'm, uh, I was born in 1972. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up during, you know, the, the peak years of tape culture. And all I ever wanted to do from the first moment I got my hands on a cassette recorder was to make home recordings of mixtapes. And um, all of us who were into music and sound did exactly the same thing. And, you know, I still have mixtapes that, like, my girlfriend made me in, like, 10th grade, you know? Um, because it was, it was such an... Not because I listened to them, but it, it was such an expression of, like... It was a way of telling somebody that you knew who they were, that you could curate, you know, a collection of music for them. And, and that power to re-record uh, in, in a, in, in within a techno-social environment that encouraged you just to be a passive consumer was, was such a resistant and liberatory act, you know? So it was like, we're in this together. Like, we're actually taking the detritus of this industrial landscape that we were handed and we're turning it into a playground where we can make things for each other. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. In the light of that, it's kind of interesting that we have gone on to be a generation of people who also get really interested in the sorts of things that you talk about, the piracy and Napster and, and your new, well, newer book, uh, Intellectual Property, or, or uh, you know, it's an essential guide to intellectual property. What is, I mean, let's unpack that. What's intellectual and what's property and, and how do those two things relate to each other? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that title was uh, was chosen by the publisher. Uh-huh. In fact, that's the that's the book that they asked me to write. They were like, "We need a book about intellectual property." Um, I am far from the first one to point out that 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 is a, a a weighted term and an inaccurate term, and a term that does a certain amount of uh, historical damage. And the reason that it does damage is because the concept of property is a kind of a binary and totalizing concept. is an idea that speaks right to like now. our, some of our, our oldest and, um, you know, kind of most atavistic impulses, right? Like this mug, which has music on it, uh, this mug is my property. I own this, right? And if you want this mug, but you can't have it, right? And economists use these terms like rivalrous, which means that if I'm using the mug, you can't use it at the same time. And excludable, like if I lock this mug in my private safe, you'll never get access to it. Right. So so things that we think of as property tend to be rivalrous and excludable. But of course, culture and the products of our intellection are not either rivalrous or excludable. And, you know, um, this was very famously pointed out in a in a in a letter uh, that uh, that. um, Oh, hold on a second. Hey, uh, doing a podcast interview. Can I call you back in a few minutes? Okay. That was my co-author, Jesse Gilbert, uh-huh. uh, and sometime musical collaborator. 
Um, you can snip that, I suppose. I can, but I might not. Okay, that's fine. Um, so yeah, so Thomas Jefferson wrote this letter where he says, uh, basically, like, I think intellectual property is a very dangerous uh, thing to build into our legal system because you know, ideas don't behave like coffee mugs. Ideas are more like the flames of candles, you know, like I can light your candle with my candle and that doesn't lessen the light on my candle. It just increases the amount of light. Um, and so that observation has been integral to the discussion of intellectual property as long as there's been intellectual property. Um, what it does do is it allows the world of cultural culture and expression to enter into the marketplace and to become commoditized. And so in practice, the statutes, the judicial decisions, the executive enforcement, and even the contracts and day-to-day -day interactions and business models built around IP are all these ongoing negotiations about under what circumstances can this thing that naturally wants to travel from person to person like a flame be frozen into a market-ready commodity and protected from competition and unlicensed use in the same way that a coffee mug or a car or a pair of shoes might be? Um, and so, you know, it's not, it's, it's a, it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it, uh, it's a kind of a bait and switch operation. You know, if you ask people like, you know, how do they use music in their lives? They'll tell you about Spotify, but they won't tell you about humming in the shower. So they're thinking about their musical experience through the lens of commodities, which are defined by what can be propertized and what can't. Um, but on the other hand, of course, IP creates a kind of structure and predictability that allows industries to evolve, to emerge around musical expression uh, and other forms of cultural expression and basically creates uh, a, um, confidence for powerful institutions uh, that have money to invest in building tools for those of us who would like to share our ideas. Right. I suppose you'd very quickly get into the weeds of how law works in this place at this time. I mean, it does seem to be, as soon as you start talking about what intellectual property is, you do start to talk very quickly about, well, it's a legal thing and the law works like this and these, there are these cases. Sure. You know, here is the legislation, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So legal, so legal categories, <clears throat> unless you believe in, a, in the kind of like God of Abraham who hands down truth on stone tablets to humanity, um, you know, if you, if you believe in any kind of version of like the Rousseauian social contract, laws exist as this kind of way of mediating social power, right? Uh, between wealthy and poor, between aristocrats and peasants, between global north and global south, between any, any groups with disparate power that you can point to. Um, the law is a system that circumscribes social behaviors in a way that that permits certain kinds of actions without consequences and assigns dire consequences to other kinds of actions to keep people from doing them, right? I mean, there are laws against murders. I probably would have killed 10 people this year if there weren't laws against, I, that's, that's a joke, but... Um, there, let's just say there would be a lot more murders if there were not laws against murder, 
right? Sure. And not necessarily perpetrated by you. <laughs> probably not. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Um, but I certainly would have slapped a couple of people. Let's put it that way. Sure. But when it comes to something like murder, at least there is a kind of like moral uh, intuition that predates the law, right? Like I, I, I'm not going to murder anyone because like I recognize myself in you and I don't want to kill myself. So I'm not going to kill you. Right. Um, I'm not interested in burning someone's house down. I think that would make me sad, not happy. Right. But laws like intellectual property don't have the same kind of moral preconditions to them. I mean, we do have a kind of moral intuition about property and a moral intuition about creative expression, but they don't really match the contours of the law in a, in a uh, direct way, the way that say like our feelings about murder match laws about murder. So what IP laws do is they basically say, these are the circumstances under which you are allowed to put create, creative ideas and expressions into the marketplace. And these are the circumstances under which other people can't. And in the US, there is a very specific reason for this social contract, for this law. And it's enshrined in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8 of the US Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 is a really interesting piece of the US Constitution. Basically, what it says is this. All Americans, and obviously that was a very limited conception at the time, it did not include African-Americans, it didn't include women, uh, lots of other people, but the basic idea being all Americans are free to do whatever they want without the government telling them not to, except for this list of things, because we can't have a functional democracy unless Congress has the ability to make laws that limit people's freedom in these specific ways. And it, it lists a bunch of different stuff. And one of them is, even though we have free speech and everybody can say whatever they want and publish whatever they want, we have a free press, people can believe in whatever religion they want, First Amendment. Even though we have that, Congress can still limit our First Amendment freedoms by creating a law that creates a copyright or a patent. But it can only do it for one reason. And that one reason is advancing the progress of science and art. And so to the extent that copyright is constitutional, to the extent that patent law is constitutional in the United States system, they are only constitutional to the extent that they limit people's free speech for the purpose of increasing the number of and, and diversity of people speaking that it incentivizes authors to share their work with the public and incentivizes inventors to share their innovations with the public. And how effective is it at doing that? That's the, you know, hundred trillion dollar question. Um, academics differ. <laughs> uh, it's a question that I ask in, in this book in the essential guide to intellectual property. And, and one of the ways that I address it is by looking and seeing, well, to begin with, Jefferson himself pointed out, listen, we just got through the age of enlightenment in Europe. And before that, we had the Renaissance and we did all of that without copyright. So like, you don't need to propertize ideas in order for people to come up with new ones and share them with each other. Like, that's what we do. Uh, to which Madison said, yes, but 
you know, England's been doing it since 1710 when we created the first real copyright law, the Statute of Anne, and, and you know, they published a lot of stuff since then, so maybe we should do it also. Uh, because, you know, money talks and bullshit walks was basically Madison's approach to, uh, to governance. So when I look at creative industries, one of the things that I did in the book was I looked at like, how good are they at actually incentivizing creators with money? And the answer was really interesting to me. I, I, I got a bunch of government data from like the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, and I got a bunch of industry level data. And I, what I wanted to know is like for every dollar that are, that's spent by consumers or advertisers on a form of creative expression, how much ends up in the pocket of the people who are actually doing the creative expressing? And the answer is across a range of industries is about 3%, including the music industry. About 3%, three cents on every dollar ends up incentivizing us to create more music. That's not a very efficient system. 97% of it burns off in the form of friction that goes into corporate profits. Like that's bonkers. There's gotta be a better way than that. And for that matter, you know, as you point out, I'm a, you know, a real musician. Like I, I'm, I'm a musician who participates in the marketplace. I get royalty checks. I play gigs. Um, I can tell you right now, I would be really incentivized if someone wanted to pay me a million dollars to write a song. But I've never written a song because I anticipated making money from it. <laughs> I wrote songs, I write songs because it gives me great pleasure and it gives me an excuse to play music that I like with people that I like. And, and as a way of giving people things. I have a friend who's making a movie right now. Uh, her name, she's a professor where I work named Bridget Marr. She's making a documentary about this woman, Sally Dixon, who's like the, the doyen of the independent uh, documentary scene in the US in the late 20th century. And I wrote a couple of songs for her to use in her movie, uh, like soundtrack songs. And then my wife and I uh, wrote like, um, uh, a, a more elaborated like vocal song uh, for her to use over the closing credits. Like she's going to pay us a couple hundred bucks for it, but we didn't do it for the money. We did it for our friend to make our friend's movie better. You know, if I have a friend who's feeling down and out, I might write him or her a song to help them feel better. Um, so while I, while I won't deny that, you know, that market mechanisms do incentivize people to create, I think that they do a pretty shit job of it. And I think they don't account for most, most of the dollars spent don't incentivize. And most of the incentive doesn't come from dollars. That's a nice way to put it. But this, you were incentivized to write this book because this is a book that your publisher wanted you to write. What's the book that you want to write? That is an interesting question. So I basically, I've, you know, I'm, I'm tenured and I've already got like plenty of like citations and publications. So I'm basically at the fuck it point of my career. You know, um, so uh, there are two kinds of books that I am excited about writing, and I'm doing both. One is uh, my new nonfiction book, which I'm writing with Jesse Gilbert, who just called me while we were talking a few minutes ago for our for our book meeting. Um, it's called The Secret Life of Data, and it's basically uh, uses some of the ideas that we're talking about today, but it's looking at all of the ways in which data can be extracted from cultural objects in ways that the people who created them didn't expect. 
And it could be like tomorrow, 10 feet away, or it could be a century from now around the globe, or it could be a millennium from now in a different galaxy, right? But we are constantly developing new technologies and epistemologies to extract knowledge from objects that people did not earlier understand was carried by those objects. And so what we're interested in is how can we think proactively about this when we're creating new technologies, new laws, new cultural practices, and think not only about the first order consequences of the media that we make, but about those nth order consequences as well, right? Like how, like this conversation that you and I are having, right? Presumably it's gonna be archived on some kind of website. You know, somebody could choose not, not to use the, the archive of this conversation to learn something from, from the words that we're saying to each other, but they could do a histogram on all the words and all the books behind me and infer something about my interests and my perspective from that. They could do facial recognition on my children and see where else they've appeared in public photography archives. They could analyze the sound of your and my voice and, uh, and um, establish whether we have any incipient medical conditions that we should be concerned about, right? Like those are just the kinds of things that theoretically could be done right now with this piece of media that we're producing. So what Jesse and I are thinking through is not only what are the implications of, of knowing that, you know, as we rush to fill every, you know, cubic centimeter of, of the human experience with data, but, you know, what, what would a supervillain do with that power? Like, what's the worst case scenario and how can we avert it? Um, so that's the, that's the kind of nonfiction. But also, um, I, I've been writing fiction. Nice. Um, and uh, specifically, I wrote, a, I, wrote a, um, I wrote a novel about New York uh, at the turn of the century, uh, the 21st century. Uh, that was kind of how I made it through the first year and a half of Trump was by working on this novel and kind of living in New York of summer of 2001. Uh, it's very much about music and about technology, uh, but other stuff too, race and gentrification and sexuality and magic. Um, but this past year, my sister, uh, who's a historian, a, hist a history professor, she and I have written two speculative fiction books together. One is a time travel semi-romance about this software coder in 2045 who gets stuck in this glitch and starts going back in time, kind of falls in love with somebody who's going forward in time. And it's so much fun. Uh, and we have an agent right now who's trying to sell that. We've gotten some very encouraging rejections, like really praiseful rejections. It's, it's very frustrating. Mm. Uh, and then after we were done with that, we wrote a like a mid-grade young adult uh, novel about a girl who lives in an unnamed city uh, whose mother goes missing and she goes to find her mother and discovers this kind of underground magical world populated by like talking crustaceans and um, that has this kind of like, uh, you know, uh, uh, ecological crisis happening. She has to solve the ecological crisis, which she does, spoiler alert, uh, with music. Nice. So I would love to be incentivized by enough dollars to be able to, to continue to write speculative fiction. That would be great. Uh, I, th there, you know, back when I was an internet industry analyst back in the nineties, people would ask me what I did. And sometimes I would glibly say, I write science fiction, you know, cause I'd be writing like five-year projections, you know, 
And I remember I, went, I once met, actually, I met this guy, uh, Spalding Gray. Oh, wow. And Monster in a box. Monster in a box. Yeah. Swimming to Cambodia. That's, that's, that's me and my wife and him and his wife. Uh, and uh, he asked me what I did for a living. And I tried to explain what being an internet analyst meant. And he looked at me puzzled for about five minutes. And then he went, oh, you're a futurist. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I'm a futurist. That's what I like. It had never occurred to me to use that term. Um, but I would like to find other creative ways to do futurism. That's not the kind of punditry and prognostication that um, that I've done for a living before. Like, I'm not interested in like, I, you know, I, I think I've become I, I've, like, I've become a worse subject for interviews. Like when, when you know, I, I pity any journalist who calls me for a quote now, because like, just like with this clubhouse story we were talking to before, I'll launch into a diatribe. Like, you know, I, I'm not interested in short, easy answers right now. I'm not interested in like telling you what's going to happen. I'm interested in talking about what could happen and what we can do about it and with it and through it. And in trying to use what little foresight and juice I have to try to nudge the world away from the precipice of disaster and towards some kind of better future in which we live more fulfilling collective lives, you know? Right. Is, is there a metric that you could look at at which point you could say, and my work here is done? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I know people who can't wait to retire. Uh, from their jobs, but God, like, I'll never, like, why would I stop doing what I, like, I love being a professor. I love playing music. I love writing books. Like, I mean, there's nothing else. I'd like to travel more because like COVID has got me cooped up, mm. but like, I mean, what better ways there to spend life than just trying to like learn and teach and make beautiful things and connect with people. I mean, what else is life for? Living the dream. Yeah. Brilliant. Aram, thanks so much for your time. It's been really, really fascinating. Uh, thank you. It's, uh, it's, it's nice to have the opportunity to ramble with a smart person who cares about what I care about. Fantastic. Cheers. That's Aram Sinreich, and that's the MTF Podcast. Aram is just at Aram on Twitter, and I'm at Dubber. That's easy. Even easier, MTF Labs is at MTF Labs across all the different social media bits and pieces and mtflabs.net on the web. Don't forget you can share, like, rate, review, follow, subscribe, download, comment, link, tweet, repost and recommend. We appreciate and reward any and all of those sorts of behaviours. Thanks so much to the MTF team, Jen Kukuchka, Sergio Castillo and Mars Staten, Bortex and Airtone for the music and Run Dreamer for the MTF audio logo. That's us for this week. Stay safe. Talk soon. Cheers. Cheers.